This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adam and Teen Energy. This season, we have been focusing on game-changing leadership. Uh, because there's so much massive disruption underway, we want to find the opportunity for the oil and gas industry. And um, speaking of the future of energy, today's show, we speak with Christine Wiley, Executive Director of the Hydrogen Technology Center at the Gas Technology Institute. So this conversation is, is really fun. Uh, Christine has spent nearly uh, two decades at GTI. Um, she began as a scientist in 2002. The Hydrogen Technology Center um, has set out to determine how to use hydrogen um, and technology related to hydrogen to store energy and leverage existing natural gas infrastructure in this transition that we spent all of our time talking about to a low carbon energy future. So Christine is, you know, she's a geek like us. Um, she's a subject, subject matter expert in hydrogen, RNG, other low carbon fuels. Um, it's interesting because she can speak with that kind of expertise, but translate it, um, translate these topics so that so the rest of us can understand what's going on. She's worked in um, areas from utility operations and environmental compliance to implementing low carbon energy solutions. So Christine holds um, a BS in biological sciences from the University of Chicago and an MBA from the Booth School of Business, uh, also at the University of Chicago. Um, and I think one thing that, that's gonna be fun for you to hear is why we should stop talking about the color of hydrogen. Um, so you can learn more about the Energy Thinks podcast and our work at Adamantine by visiting our website, energythinks.com. I really hope you enjoy and learn something surprising from my conversation with game-changing leader, Christine Wiley. Well, Christine, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thank you. I'm so very excited. Awesome. Well, Christine, I have long been an admirer of all that GTI does to serve um, the natural gas industry. And much of GTI's recent efforts have been around leveraging our existing natural gas infrastructure for a decarbonizing energy future. Uh, and hydrogen is all the buzz lately <laughs> because you lead the Hydrogen Technology Center at GTI. Can you paint a picture for us and especially those of us who who don't really know where hydrogen fits into this. Can you paint a picture of a hydrogen-centric energy future? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a very exciting time, I think, right now when we think about just our overall energy system and, and really this energy transition that we're in. And at GTI, you know, we really envision a more carbon-managed future. So we need to consider the fact that, you know, there's dual imperatives here where we're in this energy transition, we need to achieve deep decarbonization, but we need to do that by being able to provide energy that's accessible, reliable, and affordable for a multitude of communities. And so that means we need to be able to decarbonize different parts of our energy system, whether we're talking about you know, traditional oil and gas infrastructure or even the electric se sector. And so we believe that hydrogen is a solution for that. I think that you know it's really going to help us as we transition to achieve a net zero society, and it offers really great opportunities to decarbonize um, different parts of our energy system, as well as a, a sizable portion of our economy. So when we think about those hard to abate sectors like heavy industry 
for power generation and transportation. You know, hydrogen is a solution that can help decarbonize those sector, that sector. And so, you know, the versatility of it really creates this, this extraordinary opportunity. And, and it has the ability to bring together different parts of our energy system. Because as we move to decarbonize and as we move towards a more low carbon energy system, it's going to be much more integrated. So we're going to integrate the electric and the natural gas grid, for example. And we're going to need an array of solutions and pathways, which means that we need to explore different designs to our energy system because you know, what we did in the past isn't going to work for this low carbon future. I think one of the key elements that you know, I, I want to point out, though, is that we recognize that hydrogen, although it has all of these great features and, and opportunities for it to be a part of our energy system, it's not going to replace all of our existing energy sources. But what we want to stress is that with innovation and a, a thoughtful approach, we can use it in an optimal manner to support you know, those hard to abate sectors. So you hit, okay, there's so much, so much we could go into here. So this is going to be really fun. Um, and I, I was a guest on a podcast that just came out this week, uh, Carter Phipps's podcast. So it was for a general audience. And we spent a lot of time really trying to set the stage for how complex the energy system is. And I love, you said a lot of my favorite words, um, ac accessible, reliable, affordable. These are just part of the complexity of the energy system. And then there's all these hard to, hard to decarbonize um, sect, uh, portions of the energy system as well. So um, as we go, I'm not gonna assume our audience knows anything about hydrogen. And so I'll, I'll pepper in some hydrogen 101 questions. And so the, the first one is why are, are, why is everyone so excited about hydrogen right now? Like what, why, are, why, are, why is it having a moment? What do you think is going on here? Yeah, so you're correct. There is a lot of attention on hydrogen right now. Um, one, because it is a low cost and low carbon solution um, you know, to enable economy-wide decarbonization. But I think we're also seeing kind of a shift here. So there's new dynamics in Washington, right? We have a new administration that's putting forth policies and proposals to reach net zero by 2050. We also have market changes. So we're witnessing these market changes that signify this transition to low cost and low carbon energy systems. And a part of that is related to this global competitiveness, right? So countries mm -hmm. across the globe, you see them, they're implementing national hydrogen strategy plans as a part of their overall decarbonization strategies. Now, maybe in the US, we're not necessarily at that point, but it, that's that's to be, you know, that's something that needs to, that we need to get there. So, and then we also have corporations worldwide. They're, they're accelerating their commitment to carbon neutrality and reducing emissions. And, and then one thing that is of great interest, especially to the R&D community and, and really to technology is that there are these new sources of capital that are investing in clean energy and that now includes hydrogen. So you have new mm. funds being launched by major technology companies here in the U.S. that can now help bridge the gap and help accelerate these low carbon technologies like hydrogen. Mm. How cool, Christine, that you are running the, hydro the Hydrogen Technology Center 
before it was like cool and now this is the the moment and and thank you for talking to me because i feel like we, we get to talk a tiny bit before it's totally mainstream cool so i'm really excited about that and i notice in your in your um explanations that you pair low cost and low carbon which is such an important reframing because a lot of the conversation out in the world is just low carbon. And so low cost and low carbon is a, a really different paradigm for us to work in. And I'm excited to continue to explore that. In that, in that vein, I am smitten with this idea of repurposing existing natural gas infrastructure because it makes me insane. The idea that we would have millions of miles of pipes and we would just say, oh, never mind, we're moving on and we're gonna do a whole bunch more mining and manufacturing for new things and not repurpose this miraculous infrastructure we have in the US. So I'm spent with this idea, but I don't really know how does it get repurposed and, and where does hydrogen fit in to the existing natural gas value chain. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do think when we hear about hydrogen, when we see new reports about the hydrogen economy and what you know the opportunities around it, a lot of it is very much focused around the production of hydrogen. You see a lot on electrolysis, being able to produce green hydrogen, for example. But what's gonna link that production to the demand or the, the ultimate customer and user is going to be that infrastructure. And as you pointed out, we have this great opportunity to leverage a massive gas infrastructure that we've invested billions in. And that consists of, you know, over 2.6 mile million or million miles of pipe and 400 storage facilities that we can now utilize for hydrogen. Now, that's not going to come without challenges. I think we recognize that because we mm. built this infrastructure to transport a different molecule. We built it to transport natural gas or, or, or essentially methane. And now we're going to introduce another molecule such as hydrogen into that. But that's part of the reason why we wanna be able to conduct the necessary testing and, and R&D so that we can repurpose and retrofit you know, our existing infrastructure to do that. Um, it, it's really important to, to note that, you know, when we talk about the gas infrastructure, we've already proven its deliverability of fuels. It's reliable. It's, uh, you know, very large scale. We have the ability now to utilize it for large scale energy storage, which is, you know, one of the key factors when we're thinking about one of the use cases for hydrogen, really looking at, you know, being able to provide that seasonal storage for intermittent renewables like wind and solar. So that's really important. And so, you know, while um, I, I think that there's challenges associated with being able to leverage our infrastructure, um, it's already you know, happening in other parts of the world. So there is a lot of pilot studies happening in Europe. So you, if you look at the UK, or Germany, where they're blending hydrogen already into their transmission system, into their distribution system. We can leverage from those learnings. Now, we don't have the same infrastructure that they do, and but you know it's important to note that it's feasible and it can be done. And now we just need to take the action um, to do that. Mm. So it's, I can't believe that my thinking has missed this idea of of converting or blending or using existing gas storage. 
um, because I'm obsessed with the idea of seasonal storage and I hadn't thought about hydrogen in that context. So I'm just going to push on that a little more, mostly for my own uh, selfish interest, because um, it, before my my days as the CEO of COGA, the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, I actually permitted subsurface gas storage facilities. It's one of the things that made me obsessed with how important gas is as a fuel. So I've spent all this time around gas storage, but I never thought about this. So just tell us a little bit more. Um, I think our audience is pretty familiar with the need for seasonal storage, the importance of seasonal storage, but um, could existing gas storage facilities take hydrogen on either in a blended with gas capacity or even in a hydrogen only gas capacity? Yeah, so so it's, it's a very good point. And I think maybe what people might not recognize or appreciate is that we're already storing hydrogen in geologic um, reservoirs. So if you look at uh, the Gulf Coast, especially in the Texas area, that's actually a prime location um, for a hydrogen hub for this type of hydrogen market. And there's existing storage there. The, the, I the had point, no idea. Yeah, absolutely. That's so exciting, okay. Yes, so, okay. and along that coast, there's probably um, 900 miles of pure dedicated hydrogen pipelines, um, as well as the subsurface storage of hydrogen in salt caverns. But that's, that's the point here is that it's only been demonstrated in the US at that scale in salt caverns. So when we think about other natural gas storage facilities like depleted reservoirs or aquifers, that's where the R&D needs to come into place so we can understand you know, how are we going to leverage that asset? You know, how are we going to utilize it now for hydrogen? I think blending is kind of the low hanging fruit when we think about mm -hmm. um, incorporating hydrogen into our energy system. So you have a number of utilities that recently announced that they're going to have hydrogen blending pilots, but that's still at very low levels, maybe 5%. Um, when you think about that, that low percentage of hydrogen, you're, you're actually limited to the potential to reduce your CO2 emissions. It, it translates into maybe a 1% reduction. Um, so yeah. it, it is quite low, but it's a step forward to demonstrating how we can use hydrogen within our system. So, so exciting. So I want to tell you one of my bright ideas that might not be so bright. So you're welcome to push back because the best part of the podcast is I learn in real time and hopefully encourage our, our listeners not to be afraid to have their own bright ideas and make mistakes. So in the electrify everything battles and in the out there in the world where communities, including communities in my home, home state of Colorado are trying to prevent future gas infrastructure, whether that be pipelines or hookups for industrial use or hookups for residential use. One of the uh, um, arguments that we've been experimenting with at Adam and Teen is the idea of why would we take any tools off the table? And I give the example, and this will be embarrassing if I'm really wrong, but I give the example of why would we take gas infrastructure off the table for residential hookups, for example, if later we could translate that into hydrogen, a zero carbon um, hydrogen hookup, um, when we're going to need actually more flexibility of our for our electric grid. So am I on the right track? Because I never actually tested that with someone who knows what they're talking about before. Yeah, so I think, first of all, gas is going to continue to play an important role in our energy system, even as we move towards a net zero society, and you know, by mid century, you know, that that infrastructure that we built, it's massive, it's extensive, it's reliable, it's proven. And more importantly, it moves energy to where we need it when we mm. need it again in that mm -hmm. affordable, reliable and resilient manner. 
But I think as we noted earlier, when we were talking kind of about these market shifts um, and how things are moving, you know, pipeline operators are seeing, you know, financial and political dynamics that are changing around them. And, and this is all part of that, that energy transition. So 30 years from now, my hope is that we will have figured out how to pivot to clean energy while at the same time using and growing our gas infrastructure, as you talked mm -hmm. about here, to, but now to deliver low carbon molecules. So maybe that's going to come in the form of hydrogen, or maybe it's going to come in the form of renewable natural gas or synthetic methane. But mm. we need to be considering this change now so that we can plan for investments in our infrastructure and modernize our system, you know, as we're considering these future scenarios and, and really to be prepared to deliver a diversity of energy sources um, to economies of, of all sizes and, and maturities. Mm. So that's a really interesting expansion of my rather narrow idea, which is create leaving more options for delivering molecules, lower carbon molecules, and they don't just have to be hydrogen. So that's a really, I think that's a really nice way to think about it. And something that I'll just um, prompt our listeners to be thinking about that you're making me think about is how do we make sure we don't cut off policy options? How, how do we make sure we don't prematurely limit our toolbox by saying, for example, electrify everything? Instead, we wanna be saying, how do we have the most options, the most diversity to create this decarbonizing energy system when all the solutions don't exist yet? So that's a really, I really like the way you frame that up. Yeah, let, I let actually me, think in, that's a really important yeah. point. Sorry, did you? No, please. I just please, wanted please, to build go. off of that. So I think that's a yeah. really important point is the optionality and the flexibility. Mm. And so we are still early on in trying to identify which technologies, which, which pathways, which solutions are going to get us to net zero. So it's too early to take anything off the table. We are going to need a suite of tools and technologies that we can leverage. Um, and so that's really important to emphasize here. Um, especially when we just start thinking about the diversity of the end users, of the customers, the um, diversity in just the geographic location of where we need to get this energy to. Um, so again, I think really focusing on that optionality and having the flexibility to provide different solutions. And also, you know, we talked about just the delivery of different molecules Regardless of the molecule, I think the characteristics that we want to focus on are the fact that it's low carbon and that it's affordable. Mm, that's so great. So I'm going to take us off on the first of possibly many tangents, but my last podcast was with Rose Mutiso. I'm talking about energy for development in sub-Saharan Africa. And so does the Hydro Hydrogen Technology Center, are you focused? Are you um, focused on the U.S. or North America? Or are you thinking, you've mentioned geography a couple times, are you thinking about hydrogen in the context of developing economies? Yeah, absolutely. So while some of the research that we're doing is focused specifically in the US, um, you know, that happens to be because we, we do partner with a lot of stakeholders here, like the Department of Energy. So, you know, they're supporting various R&D efforts that we have in this space. But we recognize that we need to be able to provide clean and accessible energy to all types of economies and in, in, in different maturities of those economies. 
And so the technologies that we're working on, for example, we have a technology to produce blue hydrogen, for example. Um, it's actually being piloted in the UK with one of our uh, university partners at Cranfield University. We have other projects where we are looking at, again, looking at that port of Houston and trying to build out um, more of an industrial hub that is focused around being able to utilize hydrogen, leverage existing assets for production of hydrogen and utilization from, you know, whether we're talking about industrial customers or refineries. But when you think about ports in general and kind of heavy industry, mm. they're typically around disadvantaged communities. And we need to be mm. able to provide technologies and they need to be able to have access to clean energy as well. Mm, so interesting. Um, so you mentioned blue hydrogen. So this is a good chance for me to insert our a hydrogen 101 question. Tell us about the colors. What do they yeah. mean? So I get that question a lot. And I, I think what we want to focus on is the qualities of that molecule, not the color. So, you know, rather than looking at the color, we want to focus on the characteristics. It's low carbon, it's a low cost. There's, there's a lot of emphasis on the colors of hydrogen, but you know, I would love to be able to redirect that conversation to focus on just being able to produce low carbon, clean hydrogen while taking advantage of a variety of feedstocks, whether we're, we're taking advantage of fossil fuels like natural gas or biomass or even renewables like, like wind and solar. I think that's what's great about hydrogen is that we have multiple ways to produce it you know, through various conversion um, technologies and, and to be able to use different feedstocks. But I think for your listeners, I'll do a quick rundown of the colors. So green hydrogen is produced from renewables via electrolysis. Gray hydrogen is from natural gas via steam methane reforming. Blue hydrogen is steam methane reforming of natural gas, but with carbon capture. And then there's also turquoise hydrogen, which seems to be getting uh, some new attention these days, but that's produced through methane pyrolysis. Ooh, turquoise, that's new. Okay, so you've said a lot of things that are new to me and one, in addition to turquoise, which is my favorite color, so that'll be fun to learn more about. Um, I like this idea of the conversation about the colors of hydrogen is maybe the wrong conversation to be have, having. Could you maybe just riff a little bit more on how is that, that focus, maybe overemphasis of the colors distracting us from what matters. I'd love to just pull on that a little more because it's a new idea for me, but it's the kind of reframing that I love to throw Adam and Tina into the middle of. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that goes back to this concept of being able to have uh, optionality and to have flexible solutions. And so if we focus primarily around green hydrogen, let's just give an example there. Mm -hmm. And now we have policies and incentives that are going to support green hydrogen only. If you compare that to other technologies that can produce blue hydrogen, for example, um, you know, it, it's much cheaper right now to be able to produce mm. blue hydrogen. And when you think about green hydrogen, you know, it's expensive now. I mean, we're, we're trying to get the cost down, but, you know, electricity pr prices play into that because of electrolysis. Um, the, the utilization rates associated with electrolyzers, for example, um, that also plays into that. The, the um, materials utilized to produce these um, electrolyzers also plays into the cost. And so we'll, we'll be stuck, right? We'll, we'll be lagging mm. behind other 
um, countries and, and other regions who are advancing in the hydrogen space now. And so I think the point here is that regardless of the color, we need to activate on hydrogen now while we develop these different pathways to produce hydrogen. It's regardless of that, it's still a carbon-free molecule that we can use today yeah. as an energy source. I love, I love this. So, it's so interesting because blue, green, and turquoise are all zero, are ultimately zero carbon because any carbon is captured, right? So who cares where it originally came from if we can solve for affordable, reliable? Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the point is we want to be able to harness the potential of hydrogen now, right? As, as we're moving and, and, and right. building and shaping what that market's going to look like. Right. And why decide, why limit, again, why limit the options? Okay. Really interesting. Giving me a lot to think about. Okay. Another one-on-one question. So for our um, listeners that are just getting oriented with some of the examples you've given on where hydrogen can play in, paint the picture of a hydrogen centric city for me. If you could build one, uh, what would it include and how would it, um, how would it be different, better, whatever, what it's your vision. You can make it whatever you like. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, for your listeners, imagine that this hydrogen city is the community that you already live in. Um, and so th this tour is your everyday life. The, the only difference here is that it's powered by hydrogen. And so hydrogen cities and communities, they're possible. I, I think they're the future. And, and I have grand visions of being able to create a, a hydrogen city or a community. But I think that also can take shape in multiple Forms. You know, we kind of talked about um, these uh, hydrogen hubs around um, an industrial location. Um, but I think there's also the ability to use hydrogen in multiple applications like transportation. So, for example, if, if you look to California, for example, they're using hydrogen right now for uh, transportation applications, whether we're talking about, you know, long haul transportation like heavy du duty vehicles. Um, we, GTI actually manages the California Fuel Cell Partnership. So they're very dedicated to advancing the market around hydrogen for transportation, building hydrogen fueling stations, possibly using hydrogen for passenger vehicles as an alternative to, to maybe electric vehicles. So there's things that we can do now um, that, you know, in, especially in the residential sector that where we can utilize hydrogen. And, and when we talk about kind of that low hanging fruit that I referenced to hydrogen blending, you know, we have active research where we're looking at how can we blend hydrogen into our natural gas system um, and then potentially use it to, you know, heat homes. You know, how is it going to impact residential appliances? You know, perhaps you have a blend of hydrogen that, that you're utilizing now, and that's going to help decarbonize um, that specific sector. And then, you know, when we think about just on a larger scale, you know, one of the greatest opportunities to, to reduce emissions in the U.S. is associated with power generation. So we have active research going on right now to look at how can we use hydrogen for power generation, whether we're talking about blending it with natural gas or we have turbines that can use 100% hydrogen. You know, there, there, there is absolutely um, great opportunity around that space. We will be back to the Energy Thinks podcast momentarily, but if you work in the oil and gas industry, you understand that we are facing a massive set of disruptions that are unprecedented in our lifetime. This pandemic has upended the world in which we operate in. How can oil and gas leaders face these disruptions in ways that aren't just reactive, but proactive? 
Tisha Schuler's new book, The Game Changers Playbook, How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era of Continuous Disruption, is that guide for oil and gas leaders who want to make sense of this moment and chart a better path forward. Order your copy today at energythinks.com backslash game changer. That's energythinks.com backslash game changer. And now back to the show. So let me ask two really basic questions based on my own absence of knowledge. Could I someday have a, my gas stove in my case, because I live in the mountains, it's propane. Could that be hydrogen fueled? Could I be cooking over a hydrogen flame? Is that, is that possible or would it look different? So that is possible. There is research going on in Europe where they're looking at a hundred percent um, of hydrogen usage in residential uh, appliances and in that residential sector. At GTI, we've actually done testing on blends up to 30%. And, and in, in that regard, at least the preliminary testing has demonstrated that there is you know, minimal impact to residential appliances. But again, it's a limited data set, but that's why we need to do our, mm -hmm. the R&D you know, to make sure that Fun. as we integrate, we, we're operating our appliances safely. So, and then my other very basic question is if you have a hydrogen fueled or, or powered vehicle, um, do you, does it eliminate all those other particulate emissions that you get and the, the other, all the other um, downsides of combustion? Do you end up with a cleaner, uh, cleaner air quality in cities that have more hydrogen vehicles on the road? Yes, so that's correct. There is no CO2 emissions associated with hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Um, the, the one knock I will say um, with hydrogen is that it does have the potential to increase NOx emissions, but if utilized okay. properly and the systems are designed properly, then you won't have that effect. Okay, thank you for letting me digress into my imaginary city. Um, so I'm gonna... Um, pivot a little bit to talk about the kind of reception that you're getting, because um, as you know, Christine, my work is focused on oil and gas leaders changing the game. And I, I do think we need all of our resources, all of our wit, all of our courage um, to make, uh, to take a leadership role into the energy future. So I'm curious, what kind of reception are you receiving from oil and gas um, leaders from oil and gas companies? Uh, are they embracing this? Are they resistant? Did they feel this is competitive? What's the vibe out there? I think that the industry is motivated. There is definitely okay. a lot of interest, but what we're seeing now is that interest needs to transform into action. And so I think that a lot of the oil and gas industry leaders, where they are right now is trying to figure out how they're going to transform their business. Um, but the motivation is there and, and they're interested in taking action, but they're still trying to figure out the, the how and, and the what. Mm. Which is really a fun, creative place or terrifying, I guess, depending on your perspective, place, place to be. Um, so here you find yourself, Christine, your own, you are in your own right, a game-changing leader in a game-changing moment, leading a game-changing center. Um, at this just really difficult, challenging time. It's, it's been a hard year with the pandemic, with the collapse in um, oil prices. I imagine, and you're, and you're building something, um, at, as I understand, you know, more or less from scratch. So it, what ways have, uh, have your values and, and what you bring to this work, what, what way have they changed to help you get through and also 
just be in this really important moment at this, at this time? Yeah, I mean, it has been a tough time, um, especially when you're in a role where you're trying to build a new area or build a new strategic initiative that requires a lot of collaboration and coordination. So in my role, mm -hmm. I need to coordinate with all of the other R&D business groups within GTI, but also requires a lot of external engagement. And I think that has been tough, honestly, mm -hmm. during this pandemic. I, I, I'm a person that, you know, is, is really, I really want to be engaged with people and, and have that personal connection. And that's difficult to do just via Zoom. Mm -hmm. So kind mm -hmm. of building those relationships and that network. I mean, yes, we've managed to do it uh, somewhat successfully, but I cannot wait for the day when we can all get back together <laughs> in person and, and engage in that manner. On a face-to-face. Yeah, -face. There's nothing like a pandemic year to make you appreciate the magic that happens in person. Yeah, and you want um, to be, be able to build off of people's ideas, right? right and you know, right. often that hap that happens better in person than just via call. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we've really bumped up against the limits of how, how much of this we can get done. I completely agree. Um, so let's, let's just take a look in the harsh light of day. What are the big obstacles to overcoming hydrogen? Is it perception? Is it R and D? Is it money uh, policy? What are the, what are the big obstacles that you're looking at, um, trying to get over? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we have all the right ingredients to, to try and enable, you know, the investment in, in R and D and deployment of hydrogen technologies, but, um, you know, we really need to channel this motivation from policymakers, the new administration to the private sector to, to focus on that investment and on, on that collaboration. I think something that's really important, especially in the R&D space is public and private partnerships. So we need to have more of those to be able to have large scale investments in research, in integrated testing and demonstrations across the full value chain for, for hydrogen. So from production to storage to delivery and, and use. So, you know, I think that bringing together our, our, our motivation and exploring the potential for hydrogen across that value chain, that's going to help shape hydrogen markets, help commercialize solutions that, that regions and cities and communities can adopt as part of their decarbonization plans. So, you know, what we need to foster for that disruptive collaboration is, is private sector investments and technology development, policies that support and incentivize hydrogen regardless of the color, um, and then more of these large scale pilots and, and demonstrations that you know, we're seeing uh, abroad, especially in Europe and, and Asia. Mm. So if, if uh, company executives are listening and they think, oh gosh, my company's not working on hydrogen yet, but I wanna be, do they reach out to you or like, what's the best place for them to start to think about how can my company participate, support, invest? Yeah, I mean, we would love for them to reach out to, to GTI. I mean, they're already doing that, especially in the utility space. So I think you know that we work with a lot of the, the natural gas utilities and, and the electric utilities um, in, in general, but actually recently we, we launched a, a very large initiative, our low carbon resources initiative to address this decarbonization um, challenge. And so it's to advance low carbon technologies that includes hydrogen um, in that post 2030 timeframe. 
so that we can have technologies that are market ready for deployment. And, and that collaboration, that includes over 38 companies, mostly electric oh, wow. and gas utilities, who are committing over $100 million in R&D funding to advance oh, technology for decarbonization. So it's really exciting. Oh, that is. We'll have to get you back to give us some updates as you start having some breakthroughs on that. And we'll put in the show notes, we'll find out the best way um, to get in touch with you, Christine. And we'll put that in the show notes for our listeners who are inspired to participate. So um, tell us maybe one technology, no matter how far-fetched, that has you really excited. Sure. So I think it's, it's, it's one of our own technologies at GTI. Um, we call it our hydrogen generator. Um, and it is a technology that is low carbon and low cost. So it produces hydrogen from natural gas um, through a sorbent enhanced reforming process. Now, what is very unique about it is that it has inherent carbon capture. So the traditional way of producing hydrogen from steam methane reforming, if, if you wanted to make it low carbon, you'd have to add on a post carbon capture unit. Our technology has it inherent within the process. So that actually reduces the capital cost dramatically and then the overall levelized cost of hydrogen. And so that results in you know, increased efficiency, um, process intensification, we have a pure stream of hydrogen and CO2 that come out that you know you can then subsequently use um, either for you know you sequester it underground or maybe you're using it for other potential uses. Um, but we're very excited to be piloting it at our facilities in Illinois and then also in the UK. Um, and so I think that's going to be you know one of these disruptive technologies while also taking advantage of our existing fossil fuel assets. Oh, that is exciting. I had not heard of that. And that makes me want to ask 50 more questions, which I won't. We'll save that for next time. So um, what is one thing that you wish oil and gas leaders knew about hydrogen and its potential that maybe you find that people don't know? Yeah. So I, I'm going to touch on a little bit of uh, some points from your recent uh, book. So in your book, you talked <laughs> a lot about the power of the millennial generation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important. And I think that leaders need to look at that younger generation and really embrace their, their new ideas and, and, and their vision. Um, they're motivated, right, to reduce climate mm -hmm. impacts, to advance clean energy in a responsible and a just manner. And so we need to capitalize on that in this energy transition, um, because we know that just decarbonization is a monumental challenge. So we need resources that are engaged and passionate and, and ready to take action. And so, you know, that's one piece I think that, you know, we need to really leverage. I would also say, you know, to oil and gas leaders that hydrogen is an opportunity. It is not a threat to their business. It's an opportunity to, to reinvent their business, to, to revitalize an, an, an industry mm -hmm. that dates back to the 1800s. And, and really to take a look at their existing assets and infrastructure and try to apply that disruptive innovation and thinking, like how can I repurpose it? How can I transform my business to meet these dual imperatives of reducing emissions, but also meeting increased energy demands? And, and clean hydrogen can be one of the solutions to do that. Mm, that's Perfect. Thank you for that. Um, a final question for you, and this will um, speak to your personal leadership style. Um, in, in what 
in what pragmatic grounded ways are you changing your own leadership style uh, in this moment to rise to all these myriad challenges, disruptions, opportunities, obstacles? What, what way, Christine, are you changing the way you're moving as a, as a game-changing leader? So I think one, we need to let go of how we operated in the past. Mm. You know, we're in this transition. So we know what we did in the past won't work (laughs) for a low carbon future. And we need to be open to new ideas, new ways of thinking and collaborating and with each other. Um, You know, I've always tried to be a motivating and engaging leader. So, you know, creating inclusive and diverse teams, leveraging different technical skills and backgrounds and, and personal experiences. But now I think more than ever, this needs to be paramount in in how we operate our business, you know, be able to acknowledge inequities and and take action to, to correct it. And the other thing that I, I really want to stress, and I, I'm taking these words directly from my CEO, when we think about this energy transition, and especially as it relates to building out this hydrogen future, we need to be bold, empowered, and, and engaged. Mm, I love that. Bold, empowered, and engaged, which um, has as its undercurrent that you just um, inspired in us, it's un- a diverse and inclusive team. That's, that's bringing this to fruition. And I love that because I forget that we can't, the things that got us here are not going to take us forward. So we have to be grounded in reality and pragmatic, but we have to really be bringing together this kind of um, new thinking. So Christine, you have taken us on a really wide ranging journey today. Thank you. Everything from 101 to the 1000 series course on uh, hydrogen and leadership. So Christine, thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Christine Wiley for taking the time to share her ideas, her insights, her passion uh, with us. It was so fun. Uh, A game-changing insight for me was really putting this idea of optionality and flexibility at the center of our policy thinking. I really like that. I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's another way of reframing um, our planning for the low carbon energy future away from good and bad, (laughs) from from angels and devils in terms of, of fuels and sources and more into the idea of keeping our options open so we can focus on low carbon, low cost, reliable, safe. I really like that. I'd love to hear what you found uh, interesting. So visit our website, energythinks.com slash podcast, and please let me know. Um, I'd love it if you subscribed wherever you get your podcast. And of course, if you take that second and you give us a rating, it's a really big deal. It helps a lot, helps other people find us. Um, As always, my thanks to Michael Tanner, Lindsay Gage, Scott Marshall. None of this would be possible without them. Uh, Thanks for listening to the Energy Things podcast. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, and I'm wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.